Good morning, Gospel City Church. Uh, it is with a heavy heart that uh, we worship together. And I think this is the 12th week that we have been a gathering of a church online. And uh, this is certainly not the best way to do church, but it's the best, the best way that we can do church right now. And uh, we look forward to the day very soon when we can reopen. The reality is the church is not closed. Our services are suspended. Our mission is not. We are just as urgent about making disciples and glorifying God as we have ever been. And I know that some of you are meeting together, even with your small groups this morning, and so that's fantastic. And I know the question you're asking, when are we going to be able to open on a Sunday morning and gather together? And uh, the answer to that is soon, in a few weeks. How about that for some clarity? Um, let me tell you the reality right now. This campus is under construction. This is a construction zone right now. And um, in just a couple of weeks, we're expecting about 1,100 chairs to be delivered to be set up in that brand new 1,100 seat worship center. And when we reopen it, we want there to be 1,100 people seated in those 1,100 seats. And so we're looking forward to the day that we can do that. And uh, we will certainly uh, pray toward that end and let you know when we have more clarity about that. So thank you for your patience. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your giving that makes uh, the ministry possible even in these difficult days. And there's never been a time when the world needed the church to open more than it does right now. And uh, this morning I have invited um, someone who would I consider to be a mentor to me. Mm. Uh, his name is Stephen Love, mm. and uh, Stephen is our church planting pastor in residence here at Gospel City Church. He's been on our staff now for almost a year, and uh, I remember in the early days when um, I noticed there was a group of wonderful, sweet, Christ-centered African Americans that had kind of been a part of a, a community that had been longing for a church that was gospel-centered, Bible-preaching, and they had just started to show up at Gospel City. and. As they began to resonate with the message of Gospel City, they began to ask us, Hey, you're a church planting church. How about planting us in the neighborhood that we live in, which is in the more downtown area of South Bend? We're here in Granger. It's really only about five miles away, but a very different culture down there. And I knew that if we were going to plant a church there, we were going to need someone that looked like this guy and could preach like this guy and believe the Bible like this guy that yeah. we could invest in, that we could share ministry together, and uh, the Lord brought us together. What do you remember about those early days when we began to, to have a conversation about uh, you planting a church in South Bend? Yeah, those were, those were interesting days. Um, uh, I remember the first conversation you and I had. We were at lunch with Kent in person. And my wife and I were sort of investigating uh, Harvest at the time, Gospel City, investigating Trent, and we were like, who is this guy? And we went to lunch, and I remember one of the first things you said to me at that lunch. You said, Stephen, if I ever say anything to offend you or to offend any person of color, I want you to tell me and I will repent. He said, I want to learn from you. And I was like, I got in the car, I called my wife, I said, babe, who, who is this weird church pastor? Like, who is this guy, this pastor of this large church? from all human standpoint, successful church, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet had this posture of humility, a posture of wanting to learn. 
And after that, brother, we, we were sold. We were in. We were in. Yeah, and I really meant that. I, I grew up in a culture that was, was, was relatively multi-ethnic. A lot in Oklahoma, large army base there. And I mean, first of all, it's Oklahoma, so a lot of American Indian, right. Native That's Indians. Right. But uh, there were, there were in, in my class, in a public high school, mm. you know, I was probably one of about 10 people that looked like me. Mm. And then there were five or 10 guys that looked like you. And then there was everything in between, Korean, mm. German, mm. Uh, uh, black, and then the next generation because there was interracial uh, marriage there. And, and all the kids were just kind of... We, we were just all mutts mm. and somehow we all learned to get along and mm. Uh, mm. I moved from that community to go to graduate school in Memphis, Tennessee <laughs> right. and when I got to Memphis <laughs> I realized that the black people lived on that side of town That's and right. the white people That's lived right. on that side of town and it was a shock to me and, mm. and it opened my eyes to really how racially divided our country is and of course mm. in these days we are seeing once again uh, the symptoms of racial injustice. We've been in this series as we've been preaching uh, called Divine Deconstruction. And this morning we're going to take a break from marching through the Gospel of Luke, but we are going to stay on the theme of the Divine Deconstruction. And this morning we're going to talk about the Divine Deconstruction of Racial Injustice. And I've asked Stephen in just a few minutes to open his Bible and to teach us about what it means to speak and to live and to stand for justice. Not because it's a political issue, right. but right. because it is a gospel issue. You've heard the names, Ahmaud Albury. You've heard the name, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. All unique individuals created and loved by God to bear His image, and yet, tragically, they've lost their lives as a result of things that don't have easy answers. I just want to say to you this morning that the killing of George Floyd was evil, and the rioting and the looting in response to the killing of George Floyd is evil. And yet somewhere in between those two evils, there is a place for the church to speak boldly and passionately from Scripture about the issue of justice. It's not just appropriate that we speak to those issues. It is required by all who identify as Christ followers to speak out for truth. Mm. I remember um, a few days ago, I got an email from Stephen's father. His name is Lewis Love. He's a pastor in the Chicago area. And uh, he sent me a very kind email uh, in response to a recent message that, um, that I preached. And this is one of the things that he said in that email. He said, we need men who are not afraid to speak truth mm. to power. Mm. And that phrase, speaking truth to power, has been resonating with me, and, and it certainly resonated with him because as I've been learning from men like Stephen and Stephen's dad and others, um, they've identified the fact that a, a, a majority white church like Gospel City Church 
in a majority white culture like Granger, Indiana, suburban, Midwest, we have a position of power and privilege that actually is the key to change in our culture. That's right. um, and we see that even from Scripture. Just a couple of Scriptures here this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power Amen. to do so. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And this was written to a Jewish population that were struggling to know how to interact with and, and even fellowship with those who were non-Jewish, coming from other cultures. And so when he talks about the word everyone, let us do good to everyone, he's saying you can't just do good to those who look like you and talk like you and live where you live. You have to take the initiative because you have the power and the opportunity to embrace those who would otherwise be considered outsiders. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during uh, the Nazi era, and he was certainly one who spoke out right. uh, on right. behalf of those that didn't look like him and act like him on behalf of the Jewish people. And this is one of the things that is attributed to Diedrich Bonhoeffer is saying, he said this, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So as Christ followers, we have to understand that what is happening in our culture is something we see through the lens of Scripture. We understand that any culture that is not governed by Christ if Christ is not ruling and reigning inside the hearts of men and women, no matter what their color or economic status is, then that culture is going to spiral into decay. And, of course, we're watching nightly as our, our culture is, is, is unraveling before our eyes because what we're seeing is the, the product of sin. All of us are fallen. All of us have residual racism in each one of us. And for us to simply look at an incident like what happened there in Minneapolis with the killing of George Floyd and to think that, that, that that's terrible, but not to look inside of our own hearts and to say that, that mm. same fallenness, that same sinfulness infects every one of us. And without Christ governing it and ruling it, then, then I am as capable as the, as the type of violence that I've seen happen in the lives of others. And so uh, as a church, we have the answers. We can speak into a culture that has lost its way. And that's what we're going to do here in just a minute. Two men sit before you, one white, one black. Do they know which is which? I, I hope by now they okay, have figured sure. that out. For clarity's sake. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know what? The reality is, Stephen, our hearts have been knitted, mm, not sorry. because of similar cultural backgrounds. Sure. I grew up in southwest Oklahoma, more rural, mm. more blue collar. Mm. You, you grew up in South Bend. Chicago has sure. been your home in mm. recent years. More industrial, more urban. 
And yet the thing that has knitted our hearts together is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the faith that we share uh, around the things that we hold highest, uh, first tier issues. And because of that, uh, we're united. And and what's happened in our relationship needs to be true of of our entire church. Um, When we come to this place, whether you identify as as black, white, young, old, rich, poor, gay, straight, mm-hmm. addicted, sober, uh, Republican, Democrat, um, saint, sinners, um, mm-hmm. Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, Muslim, atheist, all are created by God and loved by God. Mm-hmm. And so we can love each other and speak to one another in peace while we debate our differences. As long as we are able to lay our differences at the foot of the cross and to embrace the things that matter most. Um, Some of you have heard in in the last 61 days, I have been reading my Bible like crazy. I was challenged by my son, read the whole Bible in 61 days. For me, that requires about two to three hours of sitting and reading my Bible. And one of the things that I've been struck most by as I've read it very quickly, is no matter where I was, no matter what genre, no matter what era I was reading about in gospel Mm -hmm. history, it kept coming up that the rich have a responsibility to help the poor. And I think one of the things that struck me as, as I read it this time was that's not just talking about economic status. That's right. That is talking about those who are rich in influence, those who are rich in power, have an opportunity and an obligation Mm -hmm. to empower those that don't have as much influence, Mm -hmm. those who don't have Mm -hmm. as much of a voice. And so um, we're going to speak to that issue. Mm -hmm. And our black or Latino or brown people of color Um, that our Christ followers are wondering, when is the majority white church going to use its power to speak to issues where they seem to have no voice? And we're going to use that opportunity here today. And and some people may say, well, you know, are you becoming a a political church? Stephen, how would you answer that? Like, why are you dealing with all these political (laughs) issues? I don't want, I I want to set aside those. I just want to hear about Jesus. How would you respond to that? Well, justice is never just a political issue. Justice is the gospel. The gospel is justice. It has thrown the base of it is justice and righteousness. And so if we let justice sort of be monopolized by the world, then that just shows how far we have come from gospel issues. Justice is the very attribute of God, right? We know that, we read in text uh, about his justice and his, his vengeance that he takes when justice is not acquired. So when the church stands up and says, we stand for justice, that's not a political statement, that's a biblical statement. And God is saying yes and amen. So not political, biblical, Yeah. right? And uh, Gospel City Church right. has always, for 11 years, kept the That's main right. thing, the main thing. That's you were right. saying to me earlier this week about how that struck you, that mm-hmm. we have some 
some capital That's right. that we've built up over 11 years. Why don't you expand on that? Yeah, well, oftentimes when you, when you stand on issues like this, like for justice, or when you come out on social media and say, hey, the killing of George Floyd is, is, is evil and it's wrong, oftentimes people will place you in the camp of quote-unquote left. Oh, Gospel City has gone liberal because they're standing for justice. Well, Gospel City has been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ for well over 10 years. Every Sunday, week in and week out for 10 years, you stand up in a pulpit or whoever's standing in your pulpit and says, open the word of God. Let us hear from God. And so when you stand on an issue like George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery, you have theological capital. You can point people back and say, we're, we're a straight line church that believes in the scripture as the sufficiency of God to change our lives. And so when we stand for justice, you know from 10 years, we're not stepping away from the Bible. We're standing flat-footed right in the center of God's word. And that's what God's what he does. So you have a lot of capital. And I, I praise God that this morning, as we have this conversation, that you're, you're spending some of that capital, give a voice to the voiceless. Yeah, justice is not an issue of left and right. That's right. Justice is an issue of right and wrong. Right. And so this morning, we're going to do the same thing that we do every Sunday morning. We're going to open our Bibles and we're going to allow God to speak to us because the last thing the world needs is another political opinion, right. another commentary on what's going on. We need to hear from God. Mm -hmm. And so in just a minute, uh, Stephen's going to invite you to open your Bibles. Before he does, I want to read one verse to you. This is in James chapter mm -hmm. 2, verse 9. Mm -hmm. If you show partiality, another word for that is prejudice. Mm -hmm. If you show partiality, James, the brother of Jesus, says you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is what he says. So speak and act as those who have been judged under the law of liberty. There is a new law in Christ, the law of liberty that he speaks of is simply this, love God, mm. love your neighbor. Mm. And we are bound by the law of liberty not mm. to prejudge others somehow as those who are less than. Mm. And we have an obligation under the law of liberty to love others as mm. we are already loving That's ourselves. Right. So uh, Stephen, why don't you take us to the Word this morning? Mm. Well, Gospel City, those listening in, grab your Bibles and open them right now to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. And as you're opening up your text this morning, allow for me to read to you some words of Martin Luther King Jr. As he's writing from Birmingham jail, he's composing this letter to, to those who have power to those who have capital, to his brothers who should be standing with him. He composed this letter from jail, been arrested for peacefully protesting. And he writes this letter. As you turn to Isaiah 59, listen to what MLK says. He says, first, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, 
who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Notice this last line. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. MLK wrote those words in 1963. My parents were born in 1961, just a generation ago. And he's crying out for the white moderate, as he puts it, to help those who do not have a voice. He's simply asking for help. Isaiah 59, you're there, look at verse 14. And let's let God's word speak into our present day situation. If God's word doesn't speak into what we deal with on a regular basis, then we might as well throw God's word away. But it does speak. So hear the words of God. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, then his own arm brought him salvation and his uprightness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, 
from this time forth and forevermore. The reading of God's holy word. I think knowing what Isaiah wrote here from, from God is just as important as knowing who the man Isaiah was. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 tells us that his dad was this man named Amos. And Amos was the brother of the king of Judah. So, so folks, get this. Isaiah is the nephew of the king. Isaiah is in a position of power. He's royal. He's from that cloak. He's of that blood. And the Lord calls this royal kid to fight for justice. His calling is well known. You might have even used it for your own calling. In Isaiah chapter 6, you know those famous words when I, the Lord calls Isaiah and Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. Here am I, Lord. I will go. Do, do you know what Isaiah was doing there? The Lord is calling this royal kid to sort of leave his castle to sort of leave his privilege and rather use his privilege to speak for the voiceless, to speak for the poor, to speak for the widow, to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. So if you've ever used Isaiah chapter 6, sort of your, your call to mission, your, your call to go for the Lord, and you said to the Lord, here am I, send me, do you know what you were doing according to Isaiah chapter 6? You were saying, I will use what the Lord has given me to speak for justice. Does that sound familiar, what Isaiah did? Leaving sort of his castle and, and coming to speak for justice. Does that sound familiar, him leaving his privilege and coming to speak for the voiceless? That is what Jesus Christ has done. That's Philippians chapter 2 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he came and took on flesh, took on flesh and blood, and he spoke for those who were poor. He spoke for justice. That is the sort of the storyline and the thread throughout all of Scripture that those who are in power have a responsibility to speak for those who have no power. That's what Isaiah did. That's what our Savior does. So about the time we get to Isaiah chapter 59, this is who we're reading about. We're, we're reading about a man who gave up his privilege in order to speak for the Lord. And what did he speak? He spoke for justice. Now imagine with me, if you will, some responses that Isaiah could have potentially had when the Lord called him to speak for justice, when the Lord called him to speak for the fatherless. Imagine with me some of the responses that Isaiah could have had. Isaiah could have went back to the Lord and said, well, Lord, I know you're calling me to cry out for justice, but that's not my problem. I'm sitting good in this castle. I'm sitting good in this royal position. That's not my problem. Or Isaiah could have said, Lord, you know me. You know my upbringing. I haven't done 
any injustice? Why do I have to speak out against injustice when I haven't committed it myself? And keep imagining with me. Isaiah could have said, Lord, I know those people are experiencing injustice right now, but just give me some time. I'll speak to my uncle and maybe he can put some policies in place that will change the whole narrative. But that's not what Isaiah did. He said, Lord, here am I. Send me right now. And if you ever read Isaiah chapter six, he not only said, Lord, send me right now, but Isaiah associates himself with the people that he was going to be preaching against. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. So even though Isaiah isn't the one doing the injustice, he associates himself with the sins of his nation. Again, if you ever used and raised your hand and said, Isaiah chapter six is my call to the mission field. Understand the glorious burden that you are bearing. Your voice is to proclaim and speak out against injustice. Fast forward to Isaiah chapter 59. We read it already, so I want to read it again. But look, if you will, at verse 14. Notice what it says Their Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Isaiah here is, is picturing like a, a, a public square with walls that are guarding it. And, and all day long, righteousness is trying to break through these walls. Truth is trying to break through these walls, but like armed guards, they are turned away. Uprightness and justice is turned away at the very gates of the public square. So Isaiah says when it comes to this public square, it is far away. Public square. Notice Isaiah isn't talking about the temple. He isn't talking about the tabernacle. He isn't talking about the church. He is saying in, in public, in the public square, justice is turned away. The public square here, again, these are some old language. What is, what is the public square? The public square was this open and uh, place of business where a multiplicity of people would come and go if cell phones were a thing in Isaiah's day. Many of the recordings that take place in our day would have happened in the public square. People would have pulled out their cell phones and started videotaping injustices. They would have pulled out their cell phones and began to record. This is where Isaiah is standing. Isaiah is concerned about what happens in public. And Isaiah is a prophet of God. So the complaint against Isaiah isn't, well, Isaiah, leave that to the temple. Your job is to reserve your, your outrage in the temple. No, Isaiah takes his outrage against injustice and he takes it to the public square. And do you know why Isaiah does that? Because God is concerned about injustice everywhere. 
And the reason why God is concerned about injustice everywhere is because God is everywhere. And if God is everywhere, his attributes are everywhere. And if his attributes are everywhere, he is offended every time something happens that goes against his attributes in the church and outside the church. And Isaiah says in the public square, injustice is, is taking place. If you read the Minor Prophets, Pastor Trent talked about him reading through the Old Testament very quickly. If you read the prophets, the, both the major and the minor, you will see that oftentimes lamentation happens where? In the public square. God comes to Amos and he says, Amos, I want you to wail and make your lamentation heard in the public square. Why? Because injustice is happening in the public square. God's people are to lament where sin takes place. So when we you know, open our cell phones, we open our laptops, we turn on the news and, and we see people peacefully protesting. Peacefully protesting, brothers and sisters, it's a biblical concept. The prophets all the way from Isaiah and before this is what God called them to do when they see sin they are to go where sin is and lament and to wail peaceful protest is not something that the world has created it is what God calls his people to do peaceful protest trying to mention even the riots that that that's evil even the looting and burning that's evil but, but God's people are to lead the way to lament where lament should happen. This is what we did as a core group at Redemption City Church just this past Friday. We spent the last hour sort of lamenting and, and crying out for what's happening in our city, what's happening in our world. And, I, and I'm sitting there bawling like a little kid. I'm snotting and sneezing and my wife handed me a towel because we as a body, we lamented. What we saw. I have a pastor friend of mine in Minneapolis, and he was out there sort of on the front lines. Him and some of his congregants were on the front lines, and they were marching peacefully. And I, and I read some of the comments. And one of the comments in particular said, you're a pastor. Why are you out there protesting? That comment shows us that we have gotten so far away from what God has called his people to do. And that is lament any and everywhere injustices take place. In the public square. But, but notice that the text goes on. Notice what it says in verse 15. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, there, there are people who are trying to enter in and call out injustice. But those who attempt to call out injustice, Isaiah says, even way back then, they're turned into a prey. Get, get the picture, brothers and sisters. Here you have this walled off sort of public square. Isaiah sees injustice happening and you have people who are trying to enter into the public square and call out injustices. And as a result, there are actually people who are calling the truth tellers divisive. 
those who would call out injustice are not seen as righteous, they're seen as evil. This has been sort of the history of the church in America. We can go back to Martin Luther King Jr., who in a lot of ways, as Trent and I was talking, as we, we read the, the letters from Birmingham jail, a lot of ways, MLK has been sanitized. Because when MLK spoke out, you had a lot of people within a lot of churches who were saying to MLK, you're going about it the wrong way. You're being divisive. Why are you calling out injustice? You're just causing a rift. Isn't that interesting? Those who would observe the rift are not sort of welcomed, they're cast out. We can go all the way back to, to a name, I'm gonna give you a name, you probably never heard of him, but his name is Richard Allen. And a guy by the name of Absalom Jones. Have you ever asked yourself the question, well, man, why is Sunday morning one of the most segregated hours throughout the course of the week? Why can blacks and whites and Hispanics and Asians sort of work together and play together? But when it comes to church on Sunday morning, there is this deeply divided, segregated hour. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is Sunday morning at 11 a.m. one of the most segregated hours in, in the history of America? Richard Allen and Absalom Jones will tell you why. Because back when they started the quote-unquote black church, they attempted to worship with everyone else. But as they attempted to worship with their white brothers and sisters, they were segregated. They couldn't even take communion with them. They were set aside in the balcony. They couldn't come down and pray. They couldn't come down and take communion. And as a result, they said, we have to start our own thing because we're not welcome here. And when they did that, do you know what they were called? They were called divisive. They were called that they were separating the church of Jesus Christ. Those who are calling out injustice are not welcomed, but Isaiah says they are seen as prey. Man, that situation looks hopeless. There's a walled off situation. Truth and righteousness can't get in. And as people try to enter in, they are cast aside. That situation looks helpless. But God. Truth can't enter in. But we have a God who breaks down walls. So Isaiah chapter 59 says that it says the Lord saw it and it displeased him. In other words, in Isaiah 59, this, this word displeased isn't really strong enough. It is the Lord was appalled by this injustice. The Lord was appalled by his people taking an indifference stance to injustice. It offended the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let me, let me say this clearly. The Lord is appalled. He is offended by our indifference to injustice. 
The Lord sits on his throne and he is displeased when we can care less that injustice is taking place in our streets. We say, Stephen, well, how, how am I indifferent? Well, we're indifferent. Every time we, we see another black body hit the ground and we simply scroll past. We're indifferent as we see another image bearer being struck to the ground and we say, well, on to the next cat story. We're indifferent when recipes can take precedent over God's image bearers. God is not and he has not ever been pleased whenever his people you and I who are called by his name see injustice and we take an indifferent stance. God is offended by it so much so that God says, I have to do this myself. I'm so displeased that no one is going to intercede for me that I have to do it myself. So God says, I will leave my throne room. And I will bring salvation to my people. I will bring justice. Do you hear what God says in Isaiah chapter 59? The impetus behind Jesus Christ coming to this world is because of injustice. The impetus behind Jesus Christ taking on flesh is because no one would stand up in the public square and cry out for injustice. So Christ says, I will do it myself. I will come down to earth and I will bring my glorious grace and majesty and vengeance against injustice. Christ came, beloved. To, to take care of sort of the big ass sins, right? The sin in general. But we have to understand, according to Isaiah 59, that Christ came to take care of specific sins as well. And one of the specific sins that Isaiah 59 outlines here is the specific sins of not caring about injustice of turning a blind eye, of scrolling past, of looking past because it doesn't affect me. I'm not caring because I'm not the one who is doing the injustice. Do we understand that Christ came to die for that type of indifference? And praise God he did. Praise God that the king of kings used his power and his authority to speak out for those who had no power and authority. Christ is simply following in the footsteps of Isaiah. Royal blood using his royalty to bring justice. Often we hear, as we look at Isaiah 59, often we hear, well, why don't we just wait? Isaiah says, when the Lord calls him, Lord, send me right now. Here am I, send me right now. And often we hear in today's society, well, why don't we just wait? 
we, we heard about Ahmaud Arbery and we say, well, well, why don't we just wait? Let's wait till the facts come out. And while we were waiting for Ahmaud Arbery, while the Church of Jesus Christ was waiting, Breonna Taylor happened. And when that happened, the church came out and said, well, why don't we just wait? We don't have all the facts. And, and while we were waiting for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd happened. Brothers and sisters, what, what happens now when we wait? What happens now when God's people who are called by God's name, what happens now when we wait? Christ says, I'm coming to take care of all of that. And we, as his people, should take care of that as well. If you're still in your text, I want you to fast forward very quickly to Acts chapter 6. And I love that the Bible sort of continues this story. Christ says, I am coming. I am dressing. I am putting on my breastplate of righteousness. I am putting on the helmet of salvation. I am going to take care of this thing myself. So what happens when Christ comes? What happens when he does exactly what he said he's going to do? Well, Acts chapter 6 tells us. I love how the Bible sort of speaks into our present day situation. I love that Acts chapter 6 is in the Bible. Jesus Christ has come. The, the church is, is growing. It is expanding. And yet we have Acts chapter 6 here, which I love. Because Acts chapter 6 tells us that whenever broken people interact with one another, brokenness is going to come out of that. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 6. Christ has come and justice is over, right? It's, it's all taken care of. And Acts chapter 6 says no. What we read about in Acts chapter 6 is, is the creation of this office within the church called the, the deacon office. Why in the world do we have today deacons? Because of Acts chapter 6. You have this, these Hellenistic Jews, which if you understand the, the history of the scripture, the, the Hellenistic Jews were these Greek-speaking Jews. They were a different culture. In biblical terms, they were a different race, a different ethnicity. And here we have in Acts chapter 6, these different ethnicities coming together in the scripture. What happens when different ethnicities blend in scripture? Well, messiness happens. Brokenness happens. And the Hellenistic Jews, they were being neglected. This minority group in the church was being neglected. And so they brought a complaint to the leaders of the church. And notice what the leaders of the church did in Acts chapter 6. They picked their best men to meet the need. If you read Acts chapter 6 and you understand the story there, a complaint arose and the leaders of the church met that complaint immediately. Here is this minority group in the church. They have an issue of being neglected and the leaders of the church meet that need. Notice what the leaders of the church did not do when these Hellenistic Jews came to the leaders. Notice how they didn't respond. They didn't say, well, oh, here we go again. Here go the Hellenists pulling the race card again. Haven't we done enough for them already? Notice also what they didn't do. When they were being neglected, the leaders of the church didn't say, 
Well, let's just preach the gospel. That'll solve this issue, right? No, but the leaders of the church sort of with this glorious ambidexterity, they both preached the gospel and lived out the implications of the gospel. We want to preach the gospel with our left hand, but we want to live out the gospel with our right hand. And all oh, that the church in America would do the same thing. Let's preach the gospel, but let's live out the gospel as well. And so they did. Folks, they didn't even know these Jews. The, the church was just formed. And this minority group comes to them crying out, please help us. And the leaders of the church didn't know them, but they said, hey, they're Christians. We're Christians. They have a complaint. Let's just take their word for it and meet the need. And they picked their best men to meet the need. So we go from verse 1 to verse 7 and chapter 6. And I have to read verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. Notice what happens when this minority group files a complaint. The leaders of the church meet the issue immediately. Notice what happens. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Did you catch that? A ethnic division arose in the church. And because the leaders of the church, those with power, met the need, the word of God went gangbusters. People were coming to the faith day in and day out because even though divisions arose, the, the word of God was able to speak into those divisions because people in power said we have the power to do something about it. And they did it. The church moved from verse one to verse seven because those in power used the gospel to bring about change in their everyday lives. Folks, throughout the history of the church in America, we have had a hard time moving from verse 1 to verse 7. And the reason why we have a hard time moving from verse 1 to verse 7 is because we do not take seriously the injustices that present themselves. We do not take seriously the word of our minority brothers and sisters who are crying out and saying, would you please help us? Would you please do something about it? We had an opportunity with Richard Allen and Absalom Jones to move from verse 1 to verse 7 and the church in America failed. We had an opportunity as MOK was sitting in that jail cell to, to move from verse 1 to verse 7 and the church, those with power, they, they failed. But praise God, 
brothers and sisters, we have another opportunity today to move from verse 1 to verse 7. As Trent pointed out, with those who have the voice to do something, would, would you help those who are voiceless to bring a loud cadence to their situation and bring about change? And I'm confident, brothers and sisters, when we do that, the word of God will go gangbusters in Michiana. When we practically live out the implications of the preached word of God, I'm confident disciples will be made when we cry out and lament in the streets for justice. God will see and he will be pleased. How do we practically do that, Trent? How do we practically live out what Isaiah called us to? How do we practically live out the implications of Acts chapter 6 right here in Michigan? How do, we, how do we do that? Yeah, so we've discussed, you know, how to process those things. And uh, we've, we've come up with five words. They all start with L. Nice. And it's going to form the template for us to actually put some feet to those principles. And the first is one that you've mentioned already. It's just the word lament. Mm. That's, a, that's a word that's gotten away from us a little bit. It, it, it doesn't mean just to be sad. It doesn't right. just mean to sympathize. Mm. Um, it may start there, but it's got to go even to a deeper level to the point where uh, a third of the psalms that we have recorded in our Bible were psalms of lament. And if you'll read those psalms, they're some of the most honest prayers uh, to God, so much so that it sounds like this person is really ripped at the way God is doing His business. And, and a lot of those psalms ask God questions that remain unanswered. How long, O Lord, are you going to allow this injustice to take place? I, you know, why, Lord? And, and I don't understand. And, and how could you? And, and those are complaints against the Lord. And, and those, those are appropriate things because it shows the honesty in our heart. But it's got to move from complaining to crying out. Oh, God, come and fix this. Do what I can't do. This is a spiritual issue. I don't have a spiritual power. You've got to speak into this. And then to cry, but then to turn all those burdens over to the Lord and then um, to get to the point where you trust God in the midst of that for things that you can't do. So there's an honest lamenting before the Lord um, that we do, but also to get to the place where we just listen to one another. I, I, earlier, I, I called you one of my mentors. That's because I ask you questions all the time. You have knowledge about these things in ways that I don't have. And uh, I want to be able to see my world through mm. black eyes. Mm. I want to see mm. the world through, through, through experiences that you've had that I don't have. Mm. And so um, one of the questions that, that I've asked you recently, one of the questions I would encourage you to mm. ask someone mm. who doesn't look like you, someone who doesn't live where you live, just simply to ask the question, What's it like to be you? Mm. Recently, mm. you shared with me a story mm. about experience, an experience you had in Florida. Right. And, and I know that 
Um, for those people that are watching that look like me, it, you, you could look at what happened in Minneapolis and they see a white officer with his knee on the neck of a black mm -hmm. man. And I don't know a white person that wouldn't look at that and say, that is wrong. That's right. But for those of us that look like me, we, we have a tendency to look at that as an isolated incident right. and say, that's a bad cop. Mm -hmm. But for somebody that looks like you to see that, right. you interpret that very differently right. because of your experiences, mm -hmm. maybe with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So I would just ask you the question, what, how do you interpret that? What's it like mm -hmm. to be you, mm -hmm. minority, mm -hmm. living in a majority culture? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you mentioned the example in Minneapolis. Some people see that as isolated. You know, we see it as systemic. We see it as we've seen this time and time and time again. How many isolated events does it take to prove systemic injustice? So it started in, in Georgia with Ahmaud Arbery. And people said, well, that's just the South. <laughs> of course that happens in the South, right? We have this bad reference for folks from the South. My family is originally from the South. And then it sort of shot north, which to Minneapolis, which is pretty much Canada on the border, right? Uh, and then how do we respond to that? Well, that's just Minneapolis. How many points and positions in America does it have to hit before we're saying there, it's not like one bad fruit. There's 300 bad fruit on that tree, which you know, allows us to say, well, maybe the whole tree is bad, right? So we look at it through that lens of, this isn't isolated. We've gone through multiple experiences. I have in particular, my, my father has, his father has, and we're saying this is systemic. It's not, it's not a one-off. It's a lifestyle from the history in this, in this country. Well, and it's, and it's not just your 36 years of history. Right. It right. goes back to your father and the right. generation before, and it's not too many generations until we realize right. the reason you're here mm. is because your ancestors mm. came here mm. involuntarily. Mm. That's right. My ancestors came here voluntarily. That's right. That's right. It is very possible that some of my ancestors mm. owned some of your That's ancestors. Right. That's right. That's and right. and. For, for us, we don't like to think that's uncomfortable. That's right. That's right. That, that makes me mm. feel bad about my ancestors. Mm. Well, it, it makes you feel bad today because mm. you're still living in the residual mm. impact. There mm. are deep generational wounds that's right. that you carry because of your mm. family of origin. Mm. And right. so for us, as a majority culture, not to mm not just sympathize with that, but mm. not just to call it out that's as right. something that's not just an isolated incident, mm. but it has roots mm. in a sinful past. I'm reminded of a quote, Trent, of, um, uh, the quote is, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and you pull it out three, that's not justice. If you pull it out all the way, that's not justice. You have to go about the hard work of healing the wound that you left from the knife in my back, right? And so you talk about generations upon generations. Yeah, we're here. How do we go about sort of healing that? Yeah, I can hear some of my, my white brothers and sisters give an excuse like, well, I didn't put the knife in my back. That That's was right. my great, 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 great granddaddy. That's right. That's right. And it's like, I'm not responsible. And, right. and that is just so much of a cop out mm -hmm. um, because we still uh, are the 
the the culture that has the power. That's right. That's and the right. culture that has the power is the key mm. to solving mm -hmm. the wound. Um, and so there is a responsibility. That's right. That's right. So we've talked about lamenting. We've talked about listening. And I would just encourage you, if you look like me, find somebody that doesn't look like me and go ask them, what's it like to be you? Mm. What, tell me about your last experience with law enforcement. Mm. I've been listening to my <laughs> brothers. Almost every brother mm. that looks like you has a story That's right. with law enforcement that doesn't sound like any encounter mm. I've had with law enforcement. Mm. Tell, tell us the story. What, what happened in Florida? You went jogging one day. Went you're for in, run. Was, you're was, in seminary. In seminary. You're yes. studying to be a pastor. That's right. Studying to be here. Right? And going for a jog. I was getting ready to get married, so I had to look good. Right? So I was going for a you run. You always and, look good. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Thank you, for You look good, too, man, by the way. Yeah. Um, going for a run and um, noticed this truck that was following me. And uh, I paused and sort of looked back, and the truck pulled up and said, hey, what are you doing here? Now, I know that wasn't sort of an inquisitive question, like, you know, you need directions. It was, what are you doing here? And, you know, I go on to tell the story that they saw a threat merely by my black skin. They didn't know I was studying in seminary. They didn't know I wanted to be a pastor. They saw a black man running and thought, we have to police this guy. And I said, you know what, I'm just, just going for a jog, burning some calories. And they didn't say, oh, hey, cool, that's great. Glad to have you in the neighborhood. They glared at me and just pulled off instantly, right? That's just one example of, of the things that we have to navigate on a regular basis. That's the one example that if I were to tell that story, people were like, well, that's just your one experience. That's one example where we need our brothers to come in, brothers like Trent, and those within the GCC who have voiced these concerns and saying, hey, what can we do? So listening, it, it is a two-way street, Trent. I, you know, if we have these conversations, Brother, I, I want to ask you, as a pastor of a predominantly white church, when, when stories like this come out and you see it and you have to speak in and lean into the situation, help, help us understand what are you, what are you thinking? When that, how do you go about navigating? How do, how do I go about this? Let's listen for a little bit. How does that affect you? Well, as a communicator, I know that any sentence any word that I use <laughs> that might not be the exact right. perfect word or the exact perfect sentence mm -hmm. worded in a way to navigate around the prejudice and the things people are looking for mm -hmm. because they think you might have some agenda that you don't have. Mm -hmm. People that don't know my heart, mm -hmm. people that don't know me, mm -hmm. that they would misrepresent what I would say because of a word that I used. One of the very first questions I ask you mm. is like, do you want me to call you black? That's right. Or That's right. is it African-American? That's right. Or are you a person of color? And I didn't want to step right. in something that would cause you to think I had, mm. I, I just genuinely want to love you. I don't, mm. uh, another thing is, is people talk about, it's like, well, I, I hear people who look like me say, well, I'm colorblind. Mm. And, you shouldn't be colorblind. That's right. That is a black man right, right there, right. which represents his family and his createdness Amen. and his uniqueness. Amen. And uniquely, as mm. God created him, God wants to use mm. him. And so if you're colorblind, what you're saying is, I don't want to think about the messiness and the situation, right. and I don't want to have mm. to identify that I may be in a position of privilege right. where you're 
Mm. Not. Mm. And even the word privilege has mm. baggage with it because it's been assigned to a political agenda. Right. Uh, mm. to, to say black lives matter. Well, do black lives matter? Mm. Yes. Mm. But you've put a a hashtag in front of that and somehow it's a political <laughs> statement. That's right. And so navigating all those issues, it, it, the key is going back to the relationship right. to actually get inside a person's heart. Mm. And for a person that looks like me to acknowledge humbly, mm. I am at my core just as fallen, just as evil mm. as that police officer that put the knee mm. on his neck. Mm. And apart from the grace of God, that's me. Mm. But because of the grace of God, I can walk and live mm. and speak and love mm. people that don't look like me. Mm. And so navigating through those things, I just know that, you know, the thousands of people that are going to watch this, mm. the thousands of people that would gather for worship to speak into those things mm. uh, creates a vulnerability where right? it can set you up. Even some of the things that we've talked about will, right. will be misinterpreted. Mm. And I, I, I know that some of you right now, you're feeling super uncomfortable. Mm. That's, right. That's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and some of you that get so excited when the pastor mm. pounds the pulpit about the wrongs of abortion and pounds the pulpit right. about immorality mm. and, and homosexuality, Right now, the Holy Spirit's crawling in your heart mm. and you're becoming defensive. Mm. And it may need that you, you pull away, get alone mm. before the Lord, before the Word of God, mm. and let Him do some surgery right. in your own heart. Mm. So lamenting, listening, mm. and then learning, mm. that means that we take a posture of humility. And, and I've told you, I, I, I texted you and Darren Greenfield, Black brother pastor in Philadelphia, right. John Kelly mm. um, in, in West, uh, uh, West Chicago, mm. and just said, I am your student. Mm. Please teach me. I want to be a mm. learner here. Mm. Um, my wife, Andrea, and I, uh, in February, we went to a movie, mm. and it was a movie you told us to go see. I did. It's called did. Just Mercy, mm. based on a book, true story. Mm. Um, Andrew and I didn't know the backstory. We went, we sat down, had our popcorn and our Coke. 15 seconds into the movie, words come on the screen. This is what it says. It says, Baldwin County, Alabama, 1987. Right. Right. And I immediately turned to Andrea and said, wait a minute, weren't you Miss Baldwin County? In 1987? <laughs> wow. And she said it was actually 1988, but yeah. Well, you married up. I, absolutely. Okay. So did you, by the way. Absolutely. Amen. That's right. Amen. And, and as we watch this movie, this, this unfolding of justice right. and someone that would come in and speak mm. uh, for justice, um, Andrea walked out of that movie and I had no mm. idea that that was going mm. on mm. in my zip code. Mm. And... Nobody told me. Wow. And so there was an injustice done to her mm. because of, a, of a, a worldview and a mindset. And so she's had to learn. I've had to learn. Mm. We all have backgrounds mm. growing up in a culture where because we haven't viewed things through the biblical lens. biblical lens, rather many of us have viewed things through a political lens, right. 
We've had to deconstruct mm -hmm. even our worldview to understand what Christ says to mm -hmm. these things. So we become a learner. Mm -hmm. um, even in, um, uh, in Isaiah, in the first chapter there, there's, a, there's an incredible verse there where it says that justice is something that has to be learned. Mm -hmm. um, he says, uh, learn to do good. Mm -hmm. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And so mm. we talk about our church being a disciple-making church. A disciple is a learner of Christ. That's right. How do I think like Christ? How do I walk like Christ? How do I, uh, mm. how do I exercise justice like Christ? And so... A big word for that trend is sanctification, mm -hmm. right? That is being more and more like Jesus Christ every mm -hmm. day. So yep. if we have to do that in our marriages, in our parenting, we surely have to do that how we understand justice. Yeah. We, have to, we need to be sanctified, all of us. Learn how to do that. Right. So lament, listen, learn, and the final one is simply to love. Mm -hmm. And love is not something you feel. Love is something you do. Amen. Amen. And from a position of humility, um, you know, I think the best definition of love that, that I've ever understood theologically is this. Um, loving is leaving your world mm. and entering into the world of another. That's good. That's good. So that you could bring them into your world. Mm. That's the way we love our children, right? Mm. Children don't understand adult world, so what do we do? We get down on our hands and knees. That's we right. play with little toys mm. that we have no interest in. We, we talk like kids. We eat like kids to get <laughs> into their world. And mm. in doing so, we're able to bring them into our world. Mm. And it's exactly what Christ did for us. Christ Amen. so loved the world. Right. Do you know what He did? He left His world. Mm. I couldn't go to His world. Mm until he first left his world, entered my world. That's right. And as a result of his sacrifice, his humility, he could bring me into his. So hopefully we've tried to model that for you today. Um, there, is, there is no hope for what we're seeing in the headlines other mm. than mm. a Holy Spirit move right. of revival and spiritual awakening mm. in the hearts of those who already belong to him, we, we're pastors. We're not presidents. We're not policymakers. Right. Right. You talked about being in the public square. Before you start marching in the public square, you need to probably right. spend some private time with the Lord. Yeah, Before fun. you go out and mm. demonstrate, you might want to just bring up the issue at mm. the dinner table mm. with your family. You want to influence your circle, mm. your classroom, right. your workplace, uh, the people that you already have influence with. Take them to right. a, drink a cup of coffee and mm. talk about these issues. Mm. And you're likely to have a lot more impact there mm. than carrying a sign or marching mm. down a street. Right. Um, not to say that we shouldn't do those things mm. as well, but uh, for some of us, we've already got a public platform. Mm. That's right. And it starts mm. in the home, moves mm. into the workplace, moves right. into our neighborhood, our neighbors right. across the street. And we trust that uh, our church Mm. will become a lighthouse in a very dark world. And we want to pray right now as, um, mm. as we entrust these things Amen. to the Lord. Why don't we pray? Amen. Father, thank you for loving us when we were so unlovable. Thank you for being a God of justice, mm. and yet you didn't treat us with justice. You didn't treat us the way that we deserve. You treated us with mercy because mercy 
has overcome judgment. Mm. And Lord, I'm, I'm talking to some people right now that have experienced hate, they've experienced wrong, they may have experienced crimes from someone that doesn't look like them, and, mm. and there's fear. Mm. And Lord, I pray that you would unravel that with confidence and courage in our security mm. in Christ. I pray that our very first identity would be as a Christ follower. That's right. Rather than what our skin color is or what our family of origin is, what our socioeconomic background mm. is. And God, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to some and praying for some here now that they've never had the internal deconstruction of their own prejudice, their mm. own fear mm. happen. I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would so penetrate and that uh, we would respond daily in repentance mm. and faith, believing things mm. that are at odds with the world. And God, would you collectively, as you unite your church together, mm. allow us to speak into things as we have opportunity to do good. Mm. And Lord, I pray that you protect our city. I pray that you protect right. our nation. And God, would you come and bring justice and righteousness once again. Would you push back the tide mm. of sin? And would you cause our nation to turn to you once again mm. as the only foundation for justice and mm. mercy, we pray in Christ's name. When Isaiah saw you, Lord, he heard the echoing in that place that you are holy, holy, holy. Which means injustice and immorality abuse and all these things are contrary to your nature. And then the amazing thing, through Christ, you tell us to be holy like you are holy. And if you hate those things, we should definitely hate those things. Give us your heart, O Lord. You tell us in your word that love believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. And Lord, I'm not ready to give up. I believe that through your love, the love that was displayed by your son when he came down and took on flesh and lived the life of perfection, died the death that we could not die, and got up from the grave. I believe that his love that he imparts to us has that power and ability to change hearts and lives. Would you use your church on the front line to be bastions of hope and justice and mercy and compassion? Lord, if not your church, then who? Who will stand for these things? Use us to your glory from now until you return. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.